Hey, it's Guy here. And the episode you're about to hear originally aired in June of 2015. But wait, wait, we have an update for you. The episode is called The Act of Listening. And it's about how listening to friends, to strangers, to anyone can be transformative. Now, a lot has changed in the world since we first broadcast this episode three years ago. And there are some really big questions about this sort of strange time we're living in questions about whether we're listening to each other at all. So to explore this idea, we brought Dave Isay, who's one of the TED speakers on this episode, back into the studio to talk about it. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So about 25 years ago, millions of people heard this voice for the very first time. Good morning, day one. Walking to school, leaving out your door. This is my dog, Ferocious. You know why he got that name if you hear him bark. The boy in this recording is Lee Allen Jones. He was 13 at the time. It was 1993, and he lived in one of the most violent neighborhoods on Chicago's South Side. A local public radio station gave Lee Allen and a friend tape recorders to make a documentary about their lives. The music you're hearing, by the way, is part of that documentary. And it was called Ghetto Life 101. I see the ghetto every day, walking to school. And it was basically half an hour of this kid, Lee Allen. My name's Lee Allen Jones, and I'm 13 years old. And his friend, Lloyd. This is Lloyd Newman, and I'm 14 years old. Just walking through a normal week in their lives. This is our story. It was such a simple idea, and yet in 1993, this was totally new. First-person storytelling from two African-American teenagers. We've been friends since first grade. That's seven years. I was interested in the idea of people having the chance to be listened to and tell their stories. Dave Isay was the producer behind Ghetto Life 101. But he actually doesn't appear in the documentary at all because Dave wanted Lee Allen and Lloyd to tell their own stories. We're both in that grade. When I was 10, I seen my first automatic weapon, a Glock 9. Part of what I was trying to do in these documentaries is that I always found that my voice, if I was there, it kind of pulled you out of this place. And um, what I was trying to do is have people go to a place where they felt like they were very connected to whoever was talking. And many years later, that led to a project dedicated to this idea, this idea of listening. You might have heard of it. It's called StoryCorps. Two people just talking to one another in a recording studio. And it gives people everywhere a new way to listen to each other. Obviously, times have changed since that documentary first aired in 1993. But the importance of listening hasn't. And actually, at this moment, the moment we're living in now, listening to each other feels more important than ever. We're at a point where there's like fear everywhere. And, you know, we're kind of our worst selves when we're in fear. And we don't trust one another. And trust is the glue of a free society. And we feel hopeless. And democracy can't breathe without hope. And I like to think that what StoryCorps gets at is, you know, hope and uh, courage and trust. Sometimes I'll be known as someone that might have been a little bit of a pain to get along with. But I don't think there's anybody that can't say that I didn't show them love. How about you? (laughs) I want to show people that I care and treat everyone with kindness and respect because we all deserve that. 
This is Cheriton Love and her father-in-law, Jim White. Jim is white and a Republican. Cheriton is African-American and a Democrat. What I'm most afraid of is that we'll keep getting divided, but... The two of them sat down together to record a conversation for StoryCorps. This was after the U.S. presidential election in 2016. None of that has ever stopped us from being a family. If we still lived in the circumstances from years ago, we would probably never know each other. There were some things that I taught when I was a young man that would have never allowed us to even have a conversation. But I thank God that he gave me the knowledge to understand what love really means. You know, hearing a story from someone who you might have thought was very different than you. How different we are, but we've embraced it. And recognizing a little bit of yourself in that person. We make fun of you a lot for being deep down Southern. <laughs> no, I was going to say movie. Has yeah, tremendous almost, yeah. potential to build bridges of understanding between people and hopefully someday to move the needle on helping us recognize the power and grace and beauty in the stories uh, we'll find all around us when we take the time to listen. Does it bother you that we don't agree about politics? No, it doesn't bother me. Being different shows us the different sides of things. We may differ in a lot of things, but we agree in a lot of things, and I think we listen to each other in a lot of things. You're precious to me. (laughs) You really are. Our show today is all about listening. Ideas about what we can learn when we listen to people and to places that are almost never heard. Listening as an act of generosity and also a path to discovery. Later in the show, we'll hear more from Dave Isay and his new mission for StoryCorps these days. But right now, a kind of listening that is a little less terrestrial. So are you, are you hearing this? Yep. So what, uh, what is this? This is the sound of cosmic microwave background radiation left over from the Big Bang 13.78 billion years ago. Wow. We're hearing the Big Bang right now? You're hearing what's left of the Big Bang. That's the closest that we can come to experiencing the beginning of the universe. This is Honor Harger. She's a sound artist. And a few years ago, Honor started to listen to space. Because while most of us could tell you what space looks like, not a lot of people could tell you what it sounds like. Here's how Honor explained it from the TED stage. Now, this story doesn't start with vast telescopes or futuristic spacecraft, but a rather more humble technology, the telephone. It's 1876, it's in Boston, and this is Alexander Graham Bell, who was working with Thomas Watson on the invention of the telephone. A key part of their technical setup was a half-mile-long length of wire, which was thrown across the rooftops of several houses in Boston. The line carried the telephone signals that would later make Bell a household name. But like any long length of charged wire, it also inadvertently became an antenna. Thomas Watson spent hours listening to the strange crackles and hisses and chirps and whistles that his accidental antenna detected. So what were these strange noises? As he correctly guessed, some of these sounds were caused by activity on the surface of the sun. So, whilst inventing the technology that would usher in the telecommunications revolution, Watson had discovered that the star at the center of our solar system emitted powerful radio waves. He had accidentally been the first person to tune into them. Yeah, it's crazy because because we think about space as as a silent place. Like, um, we don't think of space as having anything to hear. Well, in a sense, that's accurate because the medium of space itself is a vacuum. And, you know, obviously sound can't travel in a vacuum, but it's the fact that uh, radio waves can travel through the vacuum of space and then be detected. 
detected using the same types of radio receivers and antennas that our listeners are, are using to detect our voices. That's where the magic is really happening here. Because, you know, scaling up those antennas and changing the frequency of those receivers makes it possible for us to detect not just radio waves made by us here on Earth, but celestial radio waves made by the Sun or Jupiter or a pulsar or any other astrophysical phenomena. So, but what if you're just like out there in space, right? Like, what does that empty sound, like that empty space sound like? Well, the sound of space itself sounds a bit like an undifferentiated hissing noise. Just like a... Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it's not until you're actually, you know, listening to a particular object. So different objects sound like different things. Um, Jupiter sounds like ocean waves breaking up on a beach if it's long waves of radiation. Pebble was being thrown onto a tin roof if it's short waves of radiation. The sun sounds a little bit like the sea, kind of roaring. A pulsar, for instance, which is a pulsating radio star, sounds like a drumbeat. The faster the pulsar is spinning, the faster the beat you become quite attuned to being able to detect what it is that you're listening to just by the sounds. It's through listening that we've come to uncover some of the universe's most important secrets. Its scale, what it's made of, and even how old it is. This is what the sun sounds like. the planet Jupiter. This is a highly condensed clump of neutral matter spinning in the distant universe. When you hear those sounds, What are they telling us about space? So one of the practices of turning a non-audible phenomena into sound is trying to work out if there's something that we can hear in the data that we can't see. And sometimes ears can be incredibly effective detectors of patterns in a way that perhaps our eyes, because we use them so much more, are not as effective at. So I suppose that's the scientific answer. And then the human or artistic answer is that there's something quite emotionally fulfilling about being able to connect with something as distant and and therefore quite abstract as a star through the emotional mechanism of, of listening. These vastly, you know, kind of large astrophysical structures become a little bit more tangible to us, I think, if we can approach them through listening as opposed to just looking. Honor Harger is a sound artist and now the executive director of the Art Science Museum in Singapore. In a moment, listening with your whole body, I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to the all-new Honda Clarity Plug-In Hybrid. When the battery runs low in your electric car, it's nice to have a backup plan. That's why the Clarity Plug-In Hybrid runs on electric and gas if you need it. Plus, it's packed with a premium interior that comfortably seats five adults, a full-size trunk, and the Honda Sensing suite of advanced safety and driver-assistive technologies. Find out more about the Clarity Plug-In Hybrid at clarity.honda.com. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica? 
Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers from Embedded. Bill Spencer works at a coal mine in Kentucky. And when I start to ask him about a future without coal, he knows what I'm going to say. So if coal goes out, I'm done for. Coal Stories on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. On the show today, listening as an act of generosity and listening as a source of discovery. Shall I do another level? Uh, yes, if you could, please. One, two, three, four, five, ABC, percussion, percussion, drums, marimba, one, two, one, two. All right, so first of all, can you introduce yourself, please? My name is Evelyn Glennie. I am a solo percussionist, and therefore I go around the world giving solo percussion concerts. Evelyn is, in fact, one of the best-known percussionists in the world. You're hearing some of her music right now. She's won major prizes, she's played with the top orchestras, and when she spoke with us from a studio in the UK, sitting right next to Evelyn. Hello, Maria. Hi, Guy. (laughs) Evelyn's friend, Maria, who is repeating my part of the conversation so that Evelyn can lip read, because she is almost entirely deaf. And she started to go deaf when she was a kid, but she can still perform with incredible precision and amazing sensitivity. So the question is, How? Well, that's a a huge question, and it's actually (laughs) a very broad question. So it's always allowing the body and I would say also the eye to be the two main factors. So rather than depending on what the ear is telling you and, and you're reliant on that, in fact, I'm basically, you know, or I have discovered that heavens above, you know, sound is vibration. And that can feed through the entire body. So in a way, I see the body as a a big ear. Here's Evelyn demonstrating that on the TED stage with a marimba and a set of mallets. My aim really is to teach the world to listen. That's my only real aim in life. We have to listen to ourselves, first of all. I remember when I was 12 years old and I started playing timpani and percussion, and my teacher said, well, how are we going to do this? You know, music is about listening. How are you going to hear this? How are you going to hear that? And I said, well, how do you hear it? He said, well, I think I hear it through here. And I said, well, I think I do too, but I also hear it through my hands, through my arms, my cheekbones, my scalp, my tummy, my chest, my legs, and so on. And so we began our lessons every single time tuning drums, in particular the kettle drums or timpani, to such a narrow pitch interval. So something like that of a difference, then gradually and gradually And it's amazing that when you do open your body up and open your hand up to allow the vibration to come through, that in fact, the tiny, tiny difference can be felt with just the tiniest part of your your finger there. And together, we would listen to the sounds of the instruments, the type of sticks. Etc. Etc. They're all different. Same amount of weight, but different sound colors. How are you able to feel those differences between two different kinds of mallets? I mean, it seems like they would that would be really hard. Yes. I mean, sometimes the differences are extremely subtle indeed, but if I'm using very, very soft mallets where the wool is quite loosely wound around the head, you know, you won't get the attack so much, but you're much more prepared to listen to the resonance of the sounds. If I'm using really hard sticks, well, those are like bullets in a way. 
the feeling will come much higher up in the body from about the chest, the neck, the cheekbones and so on. And it's much more of a, a sharp attack. And, and when you play a, a really resonant note, you actually feel that note long after most people feel that note because you're sort of attuned, your body is attuned to experiencing it that way. Yes, very often, you know, if I'm playing a big bass drum or something, I mean, I can see the actual drum skin resonate. You know, you really can. You can see it going up and down. And it's interesting because in my early years, I found that a lot of the sounds that I now appreciate, I really didn't appreciate early on. So a lot of the gold-like sounds, so cymbals and triangles, glockenspiels, tubular bells, because I was feeding them through the ear, it just completely distorted everything and was quite painful. But actually, it's those sounds that I disliked early on that really do resonate in the body and I really hang on to because I've managed to just physically open myself up. As I grew older, I then auditioned for the Royal Academy of Music in London and they said, well, no, we won't accept you because we haven't a clue of the future of a so-called deaf musician. I just couldn't quite accept that. And so therefore, I said to them, well, look, if you refuse me through those reasons, as opposed to the ability to perform and to understand and love the art of creating sound, then we have to think very, very hard about the people you do actually accept. And once we got over a, a little hurdle and having to audition twice, they accepted me. And not only that, it changed the whole role of the music institutions throughout the United Kingdom. And every single entry had to be listened to, experienced, and then based on the musical ability, that person could either enter or not. And so therefore, there was an extremely interesting bunch of students who arrived in these various music institutions, many of them now in the professional orchestras throughout the world. What is it that um, people who have their full ability to hear, what is it that you think they don't quite understand about listening and hearing? Well, I mean, we're all so different, but I know that when I was losing my hearing, you know, it was a confusing time because, of course, I thought that all sound was fed through the ears. And therefore, I thought I needed volume, you know, I needed loudness in order to hear. So with hearing people, of course, there's sound everywhere and you can't get rid of that. Well, sometimes you try to by putting more sound into your system using earphones and whatever else. But but that's just then overload. Yeah. And, and there's so many dimensions to this because, because different people listen in different ways. Yes. And it's interesting because sometimes, you know, if I'm with sight impaired people and I give them uh, an, an instrument, you know, the first thing they do is to spend a good time literally feeling that instrument before any sound is being produced. Whereas, you know, when you give most people a, a handheld instrument or something, immediately it's bang, 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 you know. And it's, it was quite fascinating because then suddenly when the youngsters did in their own time decide to make a sound, we were already paying attention to them, sort of ready, waiting for, for that sound and wondering what that sound would be. So they had created this wonderful emotion and, and really created that palette of listening. And ultimately, listening is about paying attention, it's about focusing and it's about concentration. Evelyn Glenny, she's a percussionist and recording artist, and she just won the 2015 Polar Music Prize. It's an award given to pop and classical musicians. You can see her entire performance from this TED Talk at TED.com.
So up to this point, we've been mainly hearing about how listening is an act of discovery. But what about when it's mainly an act of empathy? What happens when we listen to people that are rarely, if ever, heard? So the story begins back in the mid-1980s. Jeffrey Brown was a young minister. And his first congregation was at the Union Baptist Church near Boston. And while the church was a pretty peaceful place, what was going on just outside its walls was anything but. It's a story he told on the TED stage. In my city and in the entire metro area, and in most metro areas in the United States, the homicide rate started to rise precipitously. It got to the point where it started to change the character of the city. You could go to any housing project, for example, like the one that was down the street from my church, and you'd walk in and it would be like a ghost town because the parents wouldn't allow their kids to come out and play, even in the summertime, because of the violence. And so I started to preach the crying, the violence in the community. And I started to look at the programming in my church, and I started to build programs that would catch the at-risk youth, you know, those who were on the fence to the violence. But I preached, and I built these programs, and I thought maybe if my colleagues did the same, that it would make a difference. But the violence just careened out of control, and I didn't know what to do. And then something happened that changed everything for me. It's a kid by the name of Jesse McKee, walking home with his friend Rigoberto Carrion to the housing project down the street from my church. They met up with a group of youth who were from a gang in, in Dorchester, and, and they were killed. But as Jesse was running from the scene mortally wounded, he was running in the direction of my church. He died some 100, 150 yards away. If he would have gotten to the church, it wouldn't have made a difference because the lights were out. Nobody was home. And I took that as a sign. You, you took that as a, as a sign that, I guess, that you had to change the way you were, you were going about this. No, absolutely. I mean, a paradox started to emerge inside of me. And the paradox was this. If I really wanted the community that I was preaching for, that I had to redefine my own sense of community and reach out and embrace these young people that I had cut out. And that meant that rather than trying to uh, draw young people who are at risk to violence into the confines of the church, that I needed to reach out and embrace these young men who were committing the acts of violence. So it was the drug dealers and the gangbangers and those who were out there on the street. So I started to walk the streets at night, late at night. And there was a small cadre of us who came to the realization that we had to come out of the four walls of our sanctuary and meet the youth where they were and not try to figure out how to bring them in. So we decided to walk together. We would get together in one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the city on a Friday night and on a Saturday night at 10 p.m. And we'd walk till 2 or 3 in the morning. I imagine we were quite the anomaly when we first started walking. I mean, you know, we weren't drug dealers, we weren't drug customers, uh, we weren't the police. Some of us would have collars on. It was probably a really odd thing. But they started speaking to us after a while. And as we were talking with them, a number of myths were dispelled about them with us. And one of the biggest myths was that these kids were cold and heartless and uncharacteristically bold in their violence. What we found out was the exact opposite. Most of the young people who are out there on the streets are just trying to make it on the streets. And we also found out that some of the most intelligent and creative, magnificent, and wise people that, that we've ever met were on the street, engaged in a struggle, and as a result of that, we said to them, how do you see this church? How do you see this institution uh, helping this situation? I mean, we would ask them, you know, we don't know our own neighborhoods uh, after 9 p.m. at night, uh, but you do. 
talk to us, you know, tell us what we're not seeing. And then, admittedly, we did something that is <laughs> difficult for preachers sometimes, which is to listen and not preach. What came out of that from listening to those people was a citywide program that led to a 79% drop in homicides over the next decade. It became known as the Boston Miracle. It's since been replicated in dozens of cities around the country. And basically, the program made people like Jeffrey Brown mediators in their communities. They worked with other leaders in the neighborhood and with prosecutors and probation officers to reach out to gang members. They'd offer them more support in schools, maybe access to jobs. The police were focused more on supporting the program and less on arresting people. So when you have the police, probation officers, community leaders, faith leaders, the youth out on the streets able to uh, be in dialogue with one another and, and build relationships with each other, you know, I think we were able to actually, you know, make a huge difference. The Boston Miracle was about bringing people together. But there is this political ploy to try to pit uh, police brutality and uh, police misconduct against black-on-black violence. But it's a fiction. When you think about decades of failed housing policies and, and poor educational structures, when you think about persistent unemployment and underemployment in a community, when you think about poor health care, and then you throw drugs into the mix and duffel bags full of guns, little wonder that you would see this culture of violence emerge. And then the response that comes from the state is more cops and more suppression of hotspots. It's all connected. And one of the wonderful things that we've been able to do is to be able to show that the solution is not uh, more cops, but the solution is mining the assets there in the community. When you, um, when you preach and you are delivering a sermon, it is more or less a one-way stream of information. I mean, you get feedback from the congregation, but it's yeah, more or less... Don't forget, I'm in the black church now. You know, we get a lot <laughs> right. of feedback. Right. But it's, it's a... The information is coming from you to the congregation. And you point mm-hmm. this out, that you know, preachers normally... They're not normally listening. Yep. But I wonder what you have learned about listening. Has your sort of perspective on listening changed? Yes, it has. By listening to uh, the young people, I discovered that I didn't have all the answers, but in the dialogue that occurs, you find that there is a magnetism where you come together in in a way that is greater than the sum of its parts, if you will. Yeah. And um, by listening, you find yourselves drawn into this greater presence where you can find answers that may not be audible answers, but it's something that you feel in your spirit. Reverend Jeffrey Brown, he's the president of RECAP. It's a group that works around the country to help reduce gang violence. You can see his full talk at ted.npr.org. Our show today, The Act of Listening, I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Big Questions with Cal Fussman. Have you ever wondered how Kobe Bryant became an Oscar nominee? Did you even know he's an Oscar nominee? These are the kind of questions that are answered in the podcast, Big Questions with Cal Fussman. Best-selling author and Esquire columnist Cal Fussman talks to people who have lived extraordinary lives from Kobe to Dr. Oz to Tim Ferriss. Subscribe to Big Questions with Cal Fussman now in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Thanks also to NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR 
instantly right from your desk or phone. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com NPR. Ever find yourself saying, that happened this week? Us too. All the time. I'm Tamara Keith, host of the NPR Politics Podcast, where we follow the political twists and turns and break down what it all means. Find us on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on today's show, the act of listening. And earlier, we introduced you to a guy named Dave Isay. Dave is a pioneering radio producer with an idea to give people all over the world a brand new way to listen to each other. But the story of how Dave came up with that idea actually started years ago. It was in the late 1980s. Dave was 22, and he was just starting out in radio. And it's a story he told on the TED stage. At almost the exact same time, I found out that my dad, who I was very, very close to, was gay. I was taken completely by surprise. We were a very tight-knit family, and I was crushed. At some point in one of our strained conversations, my dad mentioned the Stonewall riots. He told me that one night in 1969, a group of young black and Latino drag queens fought back against the police at a gay bar in Manhattan called the Stonewall Inn and how this sparked the modern gay rights movement. It was an amazing story, and it piqued my interest. So I decided to pick up my tape recorder and find out more. With the help of a young archivist named Michael Shirker, we tracked down all of the people we could find who had been at the Stonewall Inn that night. I guess, as they say, or as Shakespeare says, we were ladies and waiting, just waiting for the thing to happen. Recording these interviews, I saw how the microphone gave me the license to go places I otherwise never would have gone and talk to people I might not otherwise ever have spoken to. There was a cop and was on his stomach with a drag queen straddling him. She was beating the hell out of him with her shoe. Whether it was a high heel or not, I don't know. But she was beating the hell out of him. I had the privilege of getting to know some of the most amazing, fierce, and courageous human beings I had ever met. It was the first time the story of Stonewall had been told to a national audience. This was a tremendous thing that had happened at Stonewall, and it gave us a feeling that we were not going to be closeted for very much longer. I dedicated the program to my dad. It changed my relationship with him, and it changed my life. By doing that, by listening to those people, was it sort of a way for you to kind of communicate with your dad? Oh, totally. You know, it was taking steps towards him. And also, I think what I wanted to do was understand what he had gone through. And I wasn't at the place where I could talk to him about it yet. But talking to these men and women about, you know, what life was like, especially in the era before Stonewall and the hiding and the shame and pain, you know, that's where I learned everything. Over the next 15 years, I made many more radio documentaries, working to shine a light on people who are rarely heard from in the media. Over and over again, I'd see how the simple act of being interviewed could mean so much to people, particularly those who'd been told that their stories didn't matter. I could literally see people's backs straighten as they started to speak into the microphone. In 1998, I made a documentary about the last Flophouse hotels on the Bowery in Manhattan. Guys stayed up in these cheap hotels for decades. They lived in cubicles the size of prison cells covered with chicken wire so you couldn't jump from one room into the next. Later, I wrote a book on the men with the photographer Harvey Wang. I remember walking into a Flophouse with an early version of the book and showing one of the guys his page. He stood there staring at it in silence, then he grabbed the book out of my hand and started running down the long, narrow hallway, shouting, I exist. I exist. We don't think about listening as this profound act of respect, like really giving somebody dignity or, or a gift, especially people who are not listened to or not heard from. 
That's right. And and that's always been kind of the guiding lessons of um, of the last, you know, 30 years. I mean, we all have the capacity to listen in this way. Dave Isay wanted to give people a chance to tap into that capacity, which then led to StoryCorps, where two people would step inside a recording booth and just talk to each other. I just didn't know what was going to happen. I thought of, like, Jerry Springer moments and people killing each other in the booth. And, like, every, like, there were many lost, like, nights of sleep. And just like in his early documentaries, Dave wouldn't be heard in any of those recordings from the booth. It would just be a couple of people telling their own stories. And all Dave did was come up with a list of suggested questions for them to ask. How do you want to be remembered? What are the most important lessons you've learned in life? You know, can you, is there anything that you've never told me that you want to tell me now? Um, and it's, it's the kind of questions that kind of draw you together that are the kind of questions that get asked in StoryCorps. Today, StoryCorps is the single largest collection of human voices ever recorded, with more than tens of thousands of interviews archived at the Library of Congress. Now, since Dave gave his TED Talk back in 2015, things, of course, have changed. The United States has changed, especially when it comes to its national conversation. And there are big questions over whether we're listening to each other at all. And I mean, that's what's going on on this country. And And I think we're living in an extremely dangerous time. I try to not bring up politics, but you always watch the 5 o'clock news, and the minute any politician steps on, it doesn't matter who it is. I just cringe. And, Me too. Yeah, but you have to say something, whereas I would like to just pretend it's not happening. Well, you're the adult. You're the adult. <laughs> I'm the child. Oh, okay. I think I get This is a conversation between Peter Stanley and his daughter, Jen. They're on opposite ends of the political spectrum. And this conversation is part of a new StoryCorps project called One Small Step. And to be honest with you, I get a little bit miffed when you say you can't talk to me, but if you're going to get so angry and flip out about it, then you know what? I'd rather you didn't talk to me. But see, this is what drives me crazy. If there was kind of one underlying theory of StoryCorps, it's a version of, you know, it's impossible not to love someone whose story you've heard. Or, you know, you can't hate someone whose story you've heard. So what we wanted to do is figure out if there was a way that we could remind the country that we actually don't want people we disagree with dead. Right. I don't think I intentionally talk about politics with you to get into an argument with you. I'm really surprised to hear you say that. So we wanted to test this, and we've been testing this thing we called One Small Step, where we're putting people across the political divides together in StoryCorps booths. Um, People with totally different worldviews. that's right. I have nothing but respect for you. I don't agree with you all the time. I don't agree with you most of the time, but that's okay. One of the things... Mother Teresa used to say, you know, we've forgotten that we belong to each other. I mean, I just really worshipped you, Dad. I just thought that, like, everything that you thought and said was right. Mm-hmm. And you were just my best friend. But I think as I got older, I realized that you were really wrong about a lot of things. Well, you're probably right, Jen. I'm not, I never professed to be right about everything. The important thing here to me in, in our relationship is that you have your own beliefs and that I respect you for your beliefs. You were raised to be a sensitive, caring person, and that's exactly who you are. When when they walked out of that conversation, um, I don't know. It's, I know it sounds it probably sounds like a bit cheesy, but I don't know. Do you feel like a part of them was changed? It's not cheesy at all. Yeah, the microphone gives you the license to talk about things and ask questions you don't normally get to talk about, and everybody uses that permission to have these important conversations. And you know, it's not the answer to everything, but it's a step in the right direction. You know, I, I heard um, this guy, Christian Picciolini, who converts neo He used to be a, a neo-Nazi and was like the leader of the neo-Nazis in the United States, essentially, at one point. And I knew that he's worked with 120, uh, 130, 140 neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and gotten them out. 
And he said, there's absolutely no point in arguing about specific issues. It's useless. You know, the point is for just people to feel, you know, loved, <laughs> you know, and, and heard. I asked him, out of those 120, 130 people, how many would you write off or just like beyond the pale? Um, and he said, zero. He's never met one that was hopeless. There's a conversation between Christian and a guy named Johnny. I put you through hell. You were rough. I mean, there were fights. There were words that we had those yeah. years that I was the, there. The one that I remember, I kind of ushered you into the dean's office. I remember. And I remember she put her arms around you to try to calm you down and excuse the language, but you were like, you black get your filthy hands off of me. Yeah, it's a, so when uh, Christian when he was in high school, had a run-in with a school safety officer at his high school. And I remember saying to you, Chris, how can you be filled with so much hate? You play on the same football team as my son. He was a neo-Nazi at that point, violent, very violent, horrendous, horrendous run-in. And then he got out, you know, many years later, and his first job, he was sent back to the school to work on the computers there and ran into this guy. And, of course, within the first five minutes, as I'm standing in that hallway, here comes you walking right in front of me. And I didn't know what to do. You didn't see me. But I decided I was going to follow you to the parking lot and uh, tapped you on the shoulder and you took a step back. Because I knew you as you were. I didn't have words for you because I know all the hell that I had put you through. And all I could say to you was, I'm sorry. But one thing that you told me that day you were like a prophet. You said, this isn't just about some white kid who goes into a, you know, a Nazi group. Yeah. This is about every young person who feels vulnerable and, you know, is looking where to belong. And because you did that, I'm doing what I do now. People just, they're just a different person in that booth. And I think all of us have that inside of us. And, and what we have to do is figure out how to bring it out, especially at this kind of you know, really dangerous and crazy moment in, in this country and, and around the world. Um, there's one, one more I, I want to play. It's a conversation between a mother and a son, um, Tanai and Desmond, and they're talking about, um, Desmond's talking about doing an active shooter drill at a school. The class is supposed to stand on the back wall, but I decided to stand in front of the class because I want to take the bullet and save my friends. Yeah, so this is a story we, we um, broadcast before the marches coming out of Parkland. If there's any a time that I want you to be selfish, it's then. I need you to come home. So would you still stand in front of your friends, even with me telling you not to? <laughs> yes. I get that you would want me to come home, but it's really not a choice that you can make. It's a choice to have to make. I see now that there's nothing I can say that would change your mind. I just hope that it never comes to that. Talking about this makes me feel sad, but you raised a good person. And this is why I can't have the conversation with you. You keep saying things like that, and I'm speechless. You're 10, and you're that 10-year-old who doesn't clean their room, and <laughs> there's no handbook for this. This is why the conversation always ends between you and I and dead silence. Because I'm a mother. And I don't know what to say. I mean, I, mean, I guess it's important to clarify with all these examples that, you know, listening isn't necessarily about listening to someone's views or policy positions that you find repugnant or or unacceptable but it's i guess it's just it's just listening to someone's life experience right like their story or you know where they came from and how they grew up and what happened in in their childhood just just their story their life well that's that's what it's about i mean i think a lot of times when you're talking about getting into a conversation that's about a policy position it becomes more of a debate yeah. right so that's not and the point is to win <laughs> So that, you know, in these conversations, again, it's just to recognize our shared humanity and to, you know, see if we can just in a small way start to stitch the country back together again. Do you think it's possible? You know, I'm a, uh, I do. 
but I think it's going to be extremely hard. But I feel like if there's a sliver of a percentage of a chance that we can convince people in the country it's their patriotic duty to listen to each other, like a, a percentage of us of one percent of a chance, it's worth fighting for it with everything we've got. So that's what we're going to do. Ten years ago, I recorded a StoryCorps interview with my dad, who was a psychiatrist and became a well-known gay activist. I never thought about that recording until a couple of years ago, when my dad, who seemed to be in perfect health and was still seeing patients 40 hours a week, was diagnosed with cancer. He passed away very suddenly a few days later. It was June 28, 2012, the anniversary of the Stonewall riots. What do you think is the most important thing that you've accomplished in your life? What are you proudest of? Um, very proud of you, kids. I am uh, very proud of the work I've done, and I am proud of being able to turn my life around and make it into a, a happy and uh, good one. You think about dying all the time. I listened to that interview for the first time at three in the morning on the day that he died. It was at that moment that I fully and viscerally grasped the importance of making these recordings. Maybe these conversations will remind us what's really important, and maybe it will help us recognize that simple truth that every single life matters equally and infinitely. Thank you very much. Dave, I say he's the founder of StoryCorps, which is launching a new project called One Small Step. You can learn more about it and find the great StoryCorps podcast at StoryCorps.org, and you can also see both of Dave's TED Talks at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, The Act of Listening, this week. If you want to find out more about who's on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. And you can hear this show anytime by subscribing to our podcast. Do it now on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Deba Motasham. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. Also, you can write directly to us at TEDRadioHour at NPR.org, and you can tweet us. It's at TEDRadioHour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.